0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 18. I realize I'm a little late to the party having been out last week, but I want us to begin looking toward our celebration of Christmas in just a few weeks, focusing on the miraculous births that unfold in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there is this pattern whereby God remembers the barren woman visits her in grace and in power, does what seemed to her to have been the impossible and that she conceives and gives birth to a child. Against improbable and some might contend impossible odds, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, the unnamed wife of Manoah, the mother of Samson, Shunammite of 2 Kings 8, Hannah, the mother of Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, Give birth to children, children that represent milestones in redemptive history, the turning of a new page, the opening of a new chapter of God's work in the world for the salvation of a people all his own. The pattern whereby God works in the lives of those barren women sets our expectation and helps us to know what and how to anticipate the events that unfold in the early chapters of the New Testament. These miraculous births of the Old Testament wet the palate. for the miracle of all miraculous births and the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to a Virgin Mary, one who would come God clothed in flesh, who would bear our sins on Calvary's cross, be raised in victory from the dead on the third day. In anticipation of our celebration of the birth of the Christ child, I want us to begin together to observe this pattern in the Old Testament, draw the appropriate comparisons and contrasts between what God has done in lives like Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, Samson's mother, Hannah, Shunammite, in order that we might fully appreciate, relish the beauty And the miraculous nature of what God has done in the sending forth of his only son. I'm going to attempt to capture the essence of what God does in Genesis chapter 12 through 21 in the time that we have together. I enjoy doing this kind of thing. Problem is I'm not sure I'm very good at doing this kind of thing. So bear with me. We're going to jump between a few passages within that section of Scripture, but for our reading, I want us to focus on chapter 18, verses 9 through 15, and chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. If you didn't catch all that, that's okay. I'll prompt you again in just a moment. We'll begin in chapter 18, in verse number 9. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 18, verses 9 through 15. Now, just a brief introduction we're dropping into the middle of a scene here three servants ambassadors of the Lord have come to Abraham and to Sarah and they're doing what we all do when unexpected company shows up Sarah is hastily preparing a meal and Abraham is trying to kill an animal so that there will be meat sufficient for their guest chapter 18 and verse 9 the Bible says where's your wife Sarah they're in the tent Abraham answered The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself, after I've become shriveled up and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. <laughs> Look at chapter 21 in verse 1. Here the Bible says, the Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Abraham named his son, who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have born a son for him in his old age. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The birth of a child under any circumstances is just this monumental moment. If you have children, you've experienced this firsthand. When your first child is born, it is momentous and also kind of traumatizing. Brandy and I were just children, it seemed, when we walked into that labor and delivery. And uh, those two kids walked out, parents, with this child now entrusted by God to us. You have these ideas about what it's gonna be like in the delivery room, it's gonna be this Hallmark movie moment, it's gonna be so sweet and tender and mild. And it winds up being almost violent just not what you expect entering in. Trey's pregnancy was a difficult one, not just because it was the first one and you don't know what to expect and you're trying to do everything right. It was just a laborious delivery. It's disorienting when it goes on for as long as it does. One of the most memorable moments from that delivery was the fact that Trey was born after about 18 hours of hard labor on January the 11th. My wife's birthday is on January the thirteenth a date that I did not realize it was until about noon on that day and I have never since forgotten her birthday <laughs> trade's labor was hard, but hunter's pregnancy our second child's pregnancy was just was just different things were smooth. After Trey was born, we wondered, given the difficulty of that pregnancy, if we would ever have another child. While she was actively delivering our second child, we were discussing when we would have the next and how many more there would be. You, you go from having one double team to man-to-man coverage, but you feel a little more confident about the way things are going to go. And then for reasons that we still don't know or understand, after two healthy, normal pregnancies, we just couldn't have more children in fact there were three pregnancies and three miscarriages and finally as a husband I just had seen enough heartache in my wife and I said that's it and so we began fostering children through child protective services and that became our way of ministering to moms and ministering to children in the last days of 2018 we knew that my grandmother was dying my grandmother who had raised me who provided for me who had spoiled me absolutely rotten for the vast majority of our life. She was 82, and it was just obvious what was unfolding. And About 5 a.m. on January the 2nd of 2019, after actually already engaged in conversation with your search committee, I got the call, and, and she had breathed her last and went over to be with her and go through all of those things. What we did not know was that less than 24 hours before she breathed her last, a little boy was born in Octobahaw County Hospital who they would bring to me 24 hours after her passing and place him at 4 pounds and 15 ounces on the island in my kitchen with no one else at home. And I thought, what am I supposed to do with this? We didn't know what race the child was. We didn't know what gender the child was. And we didn't know how long the child would be with us when they dropped him off with me all alone while my wife was working a 12-hour shift. It was kind of a panic moment. I don't know that the connection that exists, if God intends some kind of connection to have existed between the death of my grandmother who had provided for so many for so long, who was as compassionate and tender, as much a caregiver by nature and by the Spirit as any human being I have ever known in my life and the birth of that child that would forever change our life. The point is to say that even for our third child, and we were absent his physical birth. It was a monumental moment for us, a reminder, a powerful reminder that God is the giver of life, that every birth is effectively a miracle of God. You walk into this room and you walk out with a person. It doesn't seem possible. It seems, in fact, kind of crazy, but as deeply consequential as the birth of any child is for us, especially those closest to us. They pale in comparison to the deep consequence of the birth of the child we celebrate during this season of the year. A child born by miracle, and not just in the common sense we often think when we think about the birth of a child, a child conceived of the Holy Spirit, whatever that means. You have 12 years of theological education. What does it mean to be conceived of the Holy Spirit? I don't know, except for God to clothe himself in flesh, to take his place in the womb of a virgin maiden named Mary, mildly laying aside the glories of heaven born that man no more may die. What we celebrate this Christmas season is no less than a miracle, indeed no less than the chief of all miracles. That God would be pleased to condescend in such a way as to walk in our midst. We'll see in one of the passages we look at this morning where God appears to Abraham. It's an incredible and somewhat mysterious passage of Scripture. If you think across the landscape of the Bible, this is a rare kind of episode. There are just a few times when God appears to his people in this way, hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock, revealing something of the backward parts of his glory. At a burning bush where he spoke with Moses and called him to prophetic ministry and leadership over Israel. In a temple vision to Isaiah. Before John in the book of Revelation as he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is a rare thing to behold something, though veiled something, of the glory of God. Yet God would clothe himself in flesh and walk in such a common way in the midst of a people that would, for the most part, reject him out of hand. What we celebrate during the Christmas season is a very real moment in time in human history when God intervenes, when God steps in, in order that the last chapter of redemption story might be written that you and I, by faith in Jesus, might know the fullness of salvation and the promises of heaven. Our anticipation of that event is set for us, our palate is wet, that we might appreciate the full beauty and power of what God does in sending forth His Son, born of a virgin, by passages like the one under our consideration here this morning. I want to offer you just Four basic principles from the experiences of Abraham, but especially Sarah, this aged and barren woman that God visits in a magnificent way. Look at Genesis 21, verse 1. The Bible says here, the Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. The Lord came to Sarah, the Bible said. There's a little Hebrew word that lies behind the language of God's coming to Sarah here. It's pakad. It means to visit in the Hebrew language. It's virtually synonymous with the Hebrew word zakar. There's a, a, a subtle difference between pakad and zakar, but it's, it's subtle. A, a literal rendering of those two words, you would say pakad is about visiting and zakar is about remembering, but they both have sort of the same connotations. One of the things that you'll note about these episodes in the Old Testament where God comes to these barren mothers and they bring forth a child is that these narratives are marked by a note that God remembered this woman or God remembered his people. My wife has an incredible knack for asking deep theological questions near bedtime. A couple weeks ago, she was preparing for something with women's ministry, I think, and she asked why the Bible uses the language of remembering to speak in this way. It's certainly not as though God has somehow forgotten. I did not answer her question sufficiently on that night, and I heard about it. But I'll try to provide a more adequate accounting for the use of the language of remembering this morning. The idea of remembrance is certainly not about God having forgotten. The term seems to be used in order to answer the objections that exist in the heart of those being addressed. In other words, there are seasons in life, sometimes there are prolonged seasons in life, when it may feel as though God has forgotten us. God had made a promise 25 years ago to Abraham and Sarah that they would bear a son 25 years had passed perhaps Sarah had wondered in her heart and perhaps to some extent rightly so if God had forgotten his promise or if God had somehow failed to be attentive to her needs So when the passage begins in chapter 21 and verse 1, noting that God attended to Sarah, that God effectively remembered Sarah, it's an answer to her internal objections. God, will you ever attend to my need? Will you ever remember the promise? Will you ever deliver on what you said you would do in my life? The Lord remembers here his people. He remembers the promise made to Sarah. But there's a a broader application of this principle as well. It's not just that the Lord remembers Sarah. It is that God remembers his people in general. If you go back to the beginning of our introduction to Abraham in the Old Testament, you'll find that God calls Abraham initially from his family in Genesis chapter 12. You'll be helped to turn back there to verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Abram is set up. He is the son of Terah. He is the eldest son of his father, Terah, who is an immensely wealthy man, who owns cattle. He owns sheep. He owns oxen. He owns all of the material things that mark lavish wealth. He has a great many servants under his charge. Abram is set up to live a life of luxury. And yet God calls him in chapter 12 and verse 1 to go out from his land, from his relatives, from his father's house, to the land that God would show him. God says to him, I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you and will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt and all the peoples on the earth will be a blessing, will be blessed rather through you. So God says, get out of your land, get out of your family, come away from your material wealth, from the source of earthly security, and I'm going to provide for your needs in different ways. You will be blessed, but not because of earthly advantages or privileges, but because I am attending to your need. Abraham's promised here to be the father of a great nation, but that's not the end ultimately that God intends. Rather, it is a means to an end. The promise of God to Abraham is not solely that Abraham would be blessed, but that the nations through him might be blessed. Now in biblical studies and even within church literature, the book of Genesis is ordinarily broken into two parts. It's just so immense. Genesis 1 through 11 is usually treated in one section, Genesis 12 through 50 in another. And because of this, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but because of that, The relationship that exists between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 is almost always unobserved. In other words, we don't make the connections in our mind between Genesis 12 and the call of God on Abram's life to Genesis 11 and what's unfolding in that particular chapter. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel incident. All of the peoples of the world are together in one place with one language, with one voice. They are one people. And the result of their togetherness as a unit, they have determined that they will build this tower into heaven. That has implications for how they worship. The idea is we will build ourselves a tower to heaven. We will earn the favor of God. We will make a name for ourselves, they say. This tower will be the source of our security. God's answer to their arrogance is To disperse the people, to confuse their languages, and in one fell swoop, God creates the nations of the world. Before Genesis 11, there is one people. After Genesis 11, there are people of every tongue, tribe, nation, scattered, separated. Before Before Genesis 11, there are no boundaries, there are no borders. After Genesis 11, there are people groups and ethnic groups, there are borders, there are boundaries, there are nations, plural. And just as soon as God moves in human history to establish nations, plural... He enacts in Genesis chapter 12 through the calling of Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans a missional strategy to win people of every tribe and tongue and nation to make of them a people all his own that would eternally sing his praise. As soon as there are nations, God implements a mission strategy to see that people of all those nations would come to him, ultimately come to him By faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. When God remembers or attends to or comes to Sarah... Not only does he remember her individually and the promises he's made to a barren mother who so anticipates the birth of a child, he remembers the long story, that great arc of redemptive history whereby a people are saved through Christ, grafted by faith into the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God remembers his people. And notice further what verse 1 of chapter 21 says. Not only did the Lord come to Sarah, an indicator that God remembers his people, the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Principle number two, the Lord keeps his promises. Now, I was looking down at my notes this morning and I thought, these sound like bumper sticker platitudes that if I'm not really careful will just sort of like water off the duck's back fly over the heads or off the back of those who are here as, as though these bear little meaning or significance. But if you will allow that these principles seep down into the marrow of your bones and the dark crevices of your heart, you'll find them immensely practical. God keeps his promises. God had called Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He said, come out. And so much of what he calls Abram to do runs parallel to the modern missionary experience. Leave your family, leave what you're familiar with, leave your material wealth, go to a strange place. And there's a lot of uncertainty. God says, Abram, come out and go to this land. And Abram says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later. And God says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abram effectively says, well, when? And God says, well, I'll tell you later. There's not a lot of absolute certainty on the part of Abram. But God doubles down on the call in Genesis chapter 15. I want you to look there with me. Not only calling Abraham and issuing forth a promise, but sealing by contract or by covenant his commitment to see through the promises he'd made to Abraham. In chapter 15 and verse 1, the Bible says, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the the Lord came to him, This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, "Look, Look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Now, 25 years passes after the promise before a child is born. Abram and Sarah continue to concoct these plans to try to shortcut the purposes of God in their life. Plan A, we'll just let Elimelech's son count as our son, make him the son of promise. We'll give him an inheritance. And God says, that won't work. Plan B we're introduced to in chapter 16 as Sarah says, this is not working out. How about Hagar? Let her have a child. And that created a fiasco we are still dealing with today. Your 24-hour news cycle is affected by the decision made in Abraham's bedroom now thousands of years ago. So every now and then I run into someone who will suggest that an ethical dilemma in the Old Testament is the fact that there is polygamy. There are men with multiple wives. And it will say that as though the Bible is commending that as a pattern for marriage and family. When someone says that, I can automatically know that they have never read the Bible. There is multiple wives in the Old Testament. There is no debating that reality. But if, if, if your understanding of the biblical text is that there is a positive presentation of that scenario, you had better go back and read your old Bible again. It is as problematic in the Old Testament period as it would be today. So plan A is Eleazar's son will be ours. Plan B is Hagar's son will be ours. None of these will work. God makes it abundantly clear that his offspring will be the product of his own body. Look at verse 6. The Bible says here, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is a famous verse because Paul picks it up in the New Testament to say that our salvation is not by our works. We don't win the favor of God by the things that we do. And he makes a comparison with Abram's life, this great patriarch, the hero of the Old Testament, cannot win by his works the favor of God. It was his belief of the promises of God that God accredited to him as righteousness, and so it is with us. We cannot win the favor of God by our good works. God doesn't love you because you've been baptized. God doesn't love you because you go to church. God doesn't love you because you do certain things, because you're a moral person or you have good values. He loves us because our unrighteousness has been hidden behind the cross of Christ. We have been covered in the blood of his only son, so much so that as he observes us, he sees not our deeds and misdeeds, but the perfect righteousness of his only begotten son. Abram believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Now note what the verse does not say. The verse does not say Abram believed in God. The verse says Abram believed God. And there's a world of difference between those two expressions. For all of my life, from a small child, I believed in God. But there was a moment in time in my life when Jesus, by his spirit, took hold of my heart when I believed God. When I believed the promises of the gospel in my infantile understanding, I knew that I needed forgiveness, that I was on a course for hell. Only Jesus could change my destiny, and I called out to him in faith, believing the promise of God. In our setting, virtually everyone believes in God. I would venture to guess that the vast majority, majority, nearly 100% of people who attend as guests, as newcomers, as seekers, our church, believe in God. Meaning they believe in the existence of God. Somewhere out there in the cosmos, there is one who seems to have created order from the chaos of this world, who holds the answers that remain A mystery unto us. But this verse is not about believing in God. This is a verse about believing the promises of God. I pray this morning that God would help by his Holy Spirit that you would make that distinction in your heart. The difference between believing in God and believing the promises of God is the difference between heaven and hell. The Bible says the demons believe and they tremble. But the people of God believe the promise of God and the invitation of the gospel to repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Abram believed and he credited to him as righteousness. Verse 7 says, I am Yahweh who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. It makes reference to the land. I'm going to give you the land. And Abram said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? This is just an honest, frank question on the part of Abram. If you're here this morning and you're doubtful of the truth of the gospel, if you're skeptical, or maybe there's just indecisiveness in your heart, you can't hide that from the all-seeing God. So you might as well take it to him and just confess, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. God is not afraid of that. And you oughtn't be afraid of of that conversation. It's the only place you're going to find resolution. It's the only place you're going to find a remedy for the absence of belief in your heart is to take your unbelief to God. It's going to happen. It's going to be a part of your experience along the way. You're not saved by the size or the certainty of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith, who is Jesus Christ. Bring your uncertainty to Christ. Find resolution. God's not afraid of that conversation. You oughtn't be either. God goes on to say in verse 9, and this is where things get strange. Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, split them down the middle, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he didn't cut up the birds. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. And the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be foreigners in a land that doesn't belong to them. They'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they'll go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now listen closely to verse 17. When the sun had set, and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. Now, I don't get all the symbolism and imagery there, and there's great debate about how we ought to render a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. But I know that it's an indication that God is passing through the parts of those animals. It's the same terminology that's used to describe God descending on Mount Sinai when Moses receives the tablets of the law. Now, this is kind of a strange thing, right? But what you have in the passage is an ancient Eastern example of the binding of a contract or a covenant. You bring these animals together and you cut them down the middle and you lay them out. There's an aisle down the middle and the one or the ones who are entering into the contract walk down the aisle that's created by the parts of this animal. God walks down the aisle as a smoking firepot and a flaming torch in verse 17. Now there's some debate about this, but most Old Testament scholars believe that this process was intended to signify that those entering into the contract were committing themselves to the same fate as those animals if they were to violate the stipula- stipulations of the contract. In other words, what you were saying in walking down that aisle is that if I violate the conditions of this covenant or this contract, I will be subject to the same death being cut down the middle, being separated limb from limb, the same way these animals that mark the way have been cut down. God is effectively saying, I I am going to make myself subject to tearing asunder My my character will be torn asunder. My integrity will be torn asunder. My name would, would be defamed if I failed to keep the promises of this covenant. Notice that he walks alone. This is not contingent upon the work of Abram. God takes the initiative. He takes it into his own hands that this covenant be fulfilled. God binds himself with an oath. God effectively puts his name on paper to say I have and I will forever keep my promise often people will make reference to their conversion experience by the language of walking down the aisle that can be used in one of two ways it can be used as a shorthand for God saved me I was born again and I made a public commitment to following Christ in that way it's a positive expression But it's also often used in the testimony of some who walked down the aisle at a certain point in their life only to later realize that they did not truly know Jesus but were merely going through certain religious rituals. But there was a later point when God saved them truly by the power of the gospel. I I just want for us to note collectively this morning that the assurance of your salvation is not rooted in the idea of you walking down the aisle. You can rest confidently in your eternal security by faith in Jesus, not because you walk down the aisle of a church, but because God walked down the aisle as a testament to his commitment to keep his promises. God kept his promise to Sarah. God keeps his promises to us. And even when it feels as though we've been forsaken, when our hearts may wonder in ways we would scarcely give voice to, has God somehow forsaken or forgotten us? God remembers and keeps his promise. Here's the third thing. Nothing, this is another one of those bumper sticker things, right? So y'all give me some grace. Nothing is impossible with God. In chapter 18, when when God is in conversation with Abram and Sarah hears and she laughs, chapter 18 and verse 13, the Lord asked Abraham concerning Sarah, why did she laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? The question, is anything impossible for the Lord, is somewhat rhetorical in chapter 18, but it's answered emphatically with a great big yes and an exclamation in chapter 21 when Sarah, at 90 years old, conceives and gives birth to a child. Truly, nothing is impossible with the Lord. I started thinking, I've had this sermon series on my mind. I wanted it to be much longer, and the calendar didn't work out so that it could. I wanted for us to cover all of those six episodes in the Old Testament and then finish on Christmas with the birth narrative of Jesus' miraculous birth to a virgin in Luke chapter 2. But all year, this has been on my mind for a year, and all year there have been moments when I thought, nah, I'm not going to do that. And not not because, not because there's some kind of tense theological issue or there's problematic translation or a challenge there. But for the practical reason that I know, even in this congregation, the same is true in the previous two congregations that assembled here this morning. There are women here who wrestle with issues of infertility, who might be inclined to draw too close a connection between their experience and that of those women that we're observing in these biblical examples. Now, I can't pretend to say that I know how or why God is at work in your lives, ladies, in the ways that he is, nor for anyone else, regardless of what your life circumstance is or the source of heartache that you live with on an ongoing basis. But I can say this with absolute certainty. God delights to work in glorious ways against the black and darkened backdrop of our pain and our heartache. Often in ways that only come to fruition after our earthly life has long since passed, God is often pleased to work in those ways. This is the beauty of the resurrection. That this life, that what we enjoy here is not what we are laboring toward. I was, I was thinking this morning, the book of Genesis is not written contemporary to Abraham's life, right? Moses writes the book of Genesis, and, and Moses is writing as the children of Israel are on the verge of crossing over the Jordan and entering into the promised land. Moses is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament, he's writing in retrospect. But notice that he's framing here in our section of Genesis, the experiences of Abraham and Sarah in a way that could be a source of comfort and encouragement to his contemporary audience, to those who'd experienced so much, to those who are living with very real heartache and pain, pain that might never in this earthly life be alleviated. To say to them, to note for them, that for generations that come after, there's impact and there's significance and there's rest and relief that is to come and the hope for us is that in spite of our inability to see the fruit of our labor in an earthly way or from an earthly perspective, we await the well-done, my good and faithful servant of the Father who makes all things well on the other side of the Jordan. Not in the literal sense, such as was experienced by the nation of Israel, but in the sense that God is gathering us to himself in a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a place of perfect rest, a way that has been paved by his Son jesus nothing is impossible with god and you might be astonished as the years go by at the ways that god is able to raise beauty from the ashes of your life no matter what your outcomes personally may look like here's a fourth thing and i need to move quickly through a miraculous birth god has made a people all his own if you go back to chapter 21 and Verse 5, the Bible says, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've born a son for him in his old age. You know what I, I find beautiful? I've read these verses three times today, and all three times the congregation laughed audibly probably more so than I've ever heard you laugh as a congregation and if you feel bad about laughing at Abraham and Sarah's experience be encouraged that I think your laughing response is is precisely the response God intends the name Isaac means he laughs Sarah laughed she laughed when God made the promise because it seemed so unbelievable. She laughed when the child was born because it still seems so unbelievable, uh, unbelievable in spite of the fact that it had now come to pass. And she gives him the name laughter because the birth of a child to a 90-year-old woman is just a laughable situation. Th- this is not something that happens on an ordinary like I know with ladies, age can be a sensitive thing, right? And you should never ask a lady her age. And I get like, I got all that. But at 90, it's kind of like, whatever. At 90 years old, you old. There ain't no debating that. When you get 90, you are old. We can all agree. 90 is not the new 30. Here is a 90-year-old woman with a 100-year-old husband. And she has, by natural means, God does a miracle in our passage. And in doing so, writes the next chapter in redemptive history. Isaac would give birth to Jacob and Esau. Jacob being the son of promise. Jacob would give birth to those 12 tribal heads of Israel, of their descendants, of the tribe of Judah. Our Savior Jesus would be born. And by faith in him, God is assembling a people, a nation, a priesthood of people all his own. This is a miracle, and God is advancing his plan for salvation through the birth, the miraculous birth of this child. Passages like this foreshadow the birth of Jesus and wet the pallet of anticipation for what God would do in powerful and incredible ways in the coming forth of his only son. For instance... We mentioned as we introduced chapter 21 that this theme of God attending or remembering is central in each of these birth narratives. We'll see this again next week. God remembered, and the result of that was the miraculous birth of a child. When the story of Jesus' birth begins to be told in Luke chapter one, we're introduced to a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest who goes into the temple, and while he's in the temple, God reveals to him that His aged wife, Elizabeth, would by supernatural means give birth to a child, the child we come to know as John the Baptist. But even more than that, her cousin Mary would give birth to a child. Only this child would be the Son of God. What's interesting about that is that this priest is named Zechariah, which is a compound word in its Hebrew root, Zakar and Yah, which means Yahweh remembers. Here at the outset of the telling of this great miraculous birth, we're reminded yet again symbolically but powerfully that God has not forgotten his promise toward his people. In each of these examples in the Old Testament, the barren mothers involved are aged. It's their age in barrenness or the length of time they've experienced barrenness that contributes to the difficulty of their bearing a child or the complexity of their situation or the depth of their heartache. It is an improbable thing that a 90-year-old woman would give birth to a child by natural means. It is an unlikely thing that a woman who has experienced barrenness for decades on end would give birth to a child, but it is an impossible thing that a virgin maiden, likely no more than 14 or 15 years old, would give birth to a child, though never touched by man. Whereas God does what seems improbable in the Old Testament setting, he has done the impossible in the sending forth of his only son. Isaac is born as the son of promise. He represents the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He represents the next link in the patriarchal chain, ultimately resulting... In the birth of the Christ child in the New Testament. But the birth of Jesus represents the birth of the son of salvation. One through whom the nations might believe and come to faith in Christ. The birth of Isaac represents the genetic extension of Abraham's ancestry. The children of Abraham are going to be multiplied through the birth of this son, Isaac. But the spiritual ancestry of God is multiplied through the birth of his only son, such that all who believe on him will be saved and grafted in and receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, we have been made by faith in Christ the children of God. God is at work in such incredible ways and powerful ways. Most significant of which is the sending forth of his son and the virgin birth event. I pray that, as consequential as the birth of children may be in everyday life, you would this morning reckon with the deep consequences of the birth of the Christ child. I pray that you, as individuals, would do more than merely believe in God but believe the promises of God in the gospel, that for all who repent of their sin and believe on Christ in his resurrection power, there is salvation full and free. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth for these moments together. God, I pray that you would make your word to come to life in our hearts and minds. May our hearts burn within us as your spirit helps us to discern the truth of the Scripture. I pray, God, that you would make us more than mere believers in God, but that we would fully trust, fully embrace, and fully believe the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would search this congregation over, that the most reluctant, the most stubborn, the most prideful, the most resistant, Find themselves melting under the power of your Holy Spirit. Grant eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to know with absolute certainty and clarity the truth of the gospel. God, grant it so supernaturally in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.